Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around at the carnivalesque show trial of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who have theories on whether that cabinet door was open on purpose or not. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, by my co-host BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? No longer even feeling the need to comment. You've summarized all my commentary and questions in one quick recap. This is what I'm here for. Hmm. Man, that's very important. Um, Spencer, you seem uh, somewhat pensive. Uh, Is there something you were going to say? Yeah, before we start, Sarah, pronounce that word for me. It's How a do you pen- pronounce this? It's, a pen- it's notably a pensive. It couldn't possibly have anything to do with pensive. <laughs> pen, I'm going to pronounce that wrong every single time we go through this. I refuse <laughs> to accept that term. At least well, it hasn't you know, gone don't like Don't worry it. about it too much. Just call it the magical item so you don't perseverate. Sarah, please move on. Please move on. Please. <laughs> so we do a podcast here. Uh <laughs> And we are on book four of of uh, Harry Potter, the Goblet of Fire, and we are on chapter thirty. I think it's thirty. We actually. are on chapter thirty, which is help, book, which is helpfully entitled the Pensive, the Pensive. <laughs> Unless you're going with the full French pronunciation, which sort of slipped <sighs> out of me in ways that I didn't mean it to. But we also have some segments that we do here. We have a rapid fire recap, which will be um, good luck. W- wait, fast, weighty incomprehensible uh we have bj's wizard wheezes newbies notes with spencer we award house points and then there are questions and queries uh but no qualms nor quibbles and there are quorums of all of those that will be met okay well the first question that we always have to ask is uh well so you always have the two minute time limit available um do you have any better guess as to how long this one might take? Or are you going to make a bet? I, oh, I don't know. I know I didn't make a bet the last time. I'm sorry, there's Moaning Myrtle we in the background fourth, of BJ's screen. We have a fourth participant this time. <laughs> we do. Mitty has decided that it is necessary to make his presence known in the podcast. Um, he might want one of his mouses turned into a snuff box. It is completely unclear at this point in time. Well, he is welcome to do the recap for me if he would like. I, I think it's mostly going to be one word repeated over and over in a not particularly timely fashion. Well, yeah, maybe we won't do that. He'll just lose points for me left and right. So I don't, I mean, I don't know. I didn't do a bet last time because I was making up time on the like blessedly short chapter that we had. This is a long chapter. It is a dense chapter, but I see no reason for me to not make that sort of standard bet. So let's do a 155. We are totally outlawing this next time, just so you know. But yes, the 155 <laughs> bet is in. I only, I play to the rules that I am prescribed. And just because I have figured out the rules... Oh, no, as a lawyer, I'm taking this on the chin that I didn't see this scenario. Okay, well, you'll uh, these rules will be reworked and re-incomprehensible by the time we do the next book, so... Well, don't worry. By the next book, I'll participate in the making of the rules. I don't... I don't like any of that. <laughs> Sarah, look what you've done now. All, All right. right. The timer is ready. Are you? After Harry co- comes in, Dumbledore and Moody leave to walk Fudge out, and after saying hello to Fox, Harry starts rooting around in a cabinet where he finds a shallow basin with some silvery stuff in it. Trying to figure out what it is, he falls in. Like Riddle's diary, no one notices him suddenly appearing in the scene, least of all the Dumbledore he finds himself sitting next to. He's in a combination dunge- uh, dungeon and courtroom, and a familiar man is being led to the chained chair in the spotlight, Karkarov. Barty Crouch is the one questioning him before the ministry. Karkarov has been brought from Azkaban to name Death Eaters. Moody's there and is not pleased that he might get any sort of deal. The first few names he throws out are pretty useless. Known or dead or low level, he finally throws out Snape, and Crouch confirms that uh, he had been vouched for by Dumbledore, having rejoined the right side before Voldemort fell. Harry re-enters another dungeon scene, but with a very different atmosphere. Ludo Bagman is in the hot seat, accused of passing information to a Death Eater in the Ministry. He claims to simply be a bit of an idiot, and the jury agrees, letting him off. Crouch is disgusted. The next version of the dungeon is different again. Crouch is still there, but there's a witch in distress beside him. The Dementors bring in a group of the accused 
accused, including Barty Crouch Jr., the, they're accused of torturing Frank and Alice Longbottom. After Crouch sentences his sons, his son and friends to life in Azkaban, his son is still shouting that he didn't do it, even as his comrades geo that Voldemort will return. Chaos ensues as Crouch disowns his son, and the current Dumbledore enters the scene to pull Harry back to the present. In Dumbledore's office, Harry tries to sputter an apology, but Dumbledore is just ready to talk. They've been in the Pensieve, which allows you to externalize your memories to better review them. Dumbledore demonstrates and pulls some silvery stuff from his head. He then pulls up a memory of Bertha Jorkins as a student. Harry finally gets around to telling him about his dream and hurting Scar. Dumbledore's theory is that his scar hurts when Voldemort is nearby or feeling particularly hateful. The state of the world is eerily similar to how it felt during Voldemort's rise to power, disappearances, strange attacks. Harry specifically asks about Neville's parents and what he heard in the Pensieve. They weren't killed, but were driven mad. Neville lives with his grandmother because his parents are in St. Mungo's Hospital, so they don't really know if Crouch's son was involved. Bagman has never been accused of anything since. Neither Dumbledore is clear has Snape, and that's all he will say on that subject. That is well-timed. There was some in-the-moment editing there, so... One fifty-six sixty-two. When there are three different courtroom scenes and uh, explanatory information around that, this is... I, I am not even going to ask you, BJ, how, what you thought about that summary. <laughs> because I don't care at this point. What do you have to wheeze about? Um... As we've talked about quite a number of times, the later chapters have uh, less entertaining wheezes in them. Um, Fair. And and as I've sort of been wheezing about on and off uh, since, I think, last episode, uh, there's some amusement with the pensive-pensive play on words, but that's a lot of what we have this chapter in terms of uh, sort of entertaining things like that. we have a little bit of a perfect use of the M dash, but you know, we have to take those in stride now. That's just you know the way of the world. Yes. Um, as is the I will say. Speaking of um, way of the world, as is the just full on boys will be boys defense that Ludo Bagman launches here. Oh God! Yeah. Um, you want an example of why I distrust juries? Let's just summarize it in this scene. I've seen worse. The explanation of the pensive pensive is kind of hilarious um, and sort of gives rise to all sorts of questions about magical items in this world that we still haven't had answered. um, And I don't know that anybody knows the answer to them. Uh, But it's one simply siphons, siphons out excess thoughts from one's mind, pours them into the basin and examines them at one's leisure. It becomes easier to spot patterns and links, (laughs) you understand, when they are in this form. Okay. So, like, is it a copying or an extraction? Like, it kind of sounds like an an extraction, which, because Dumbledore uh, later has, uh, well, when he says it, like, you have excess thoughts. And it's like, so you're just, like, taking some out. And please God don't let Harry use them because he's only got like three or four and I don't know what's going to happen if he takes them out. That is a, a, an excellent point. Um, I will, I think that I can say this without spoiling anything. Harry himself never uses the pensive on his own brain. Not surprised. I'm not sure he would, like I, I can't imagine him trying to figure out how to use it. That That seems like a very, you know, deft wielding of magic that Harry uses you know, a nine iron as opposed to a surgical scalpel. Yeah, he's at Nurse um, Ratchet doing the lobotomies instead of, oh God. like, precision brain surgery here. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, let's see, one of these other things that I thought was most entertaining is not actually per se the text, but there are close to 8,000 highlights in the Kindle edition of Curiosity is Not a Sin, but we should exercise caution with our curiosity. Yes, indeed. Which is a very interesting way to go about violating other people's privacy as a, like, you know, you should maybe think about how you do that in the future. Um, I mean, admittedly, there's a very clear byline of Dumbledore putting out insanely powerful magical items for Harry Potter to stumble into in kind of weird ways. Um, Man's got a history here. So it's not unreasonable that Harry Potter is like, oh, well, there's a thing. I should put my face into it. Um, And that being 
everybody deciding that that's a reasonable course of action. Um, it's particularly, I, I had not really noticed this before, but he starts his journey into the Pensieve with a, a kind of narrator, hairy narrator voice saying like, we know how dangerous magical objects that we don't know what they do can be. <laughs> I should be cautious here. Let me stick my face in it. Oh, God. Well, I think the best part, and, you know, this reminds me of, at some point, my uh, French uncle was teaching me how to taste wine, and he's like, you need to really get, you know, a good smell of bouquet of it, and he has a somewhat large nose and snorted a bunch of wine, (laughs) and, like, yeah, there are times that, you know, you make a little mistake, and, you know, you get a little bit of wine up your nose. There are other times when you get sucked into a magical (laughs) object and had... Dumbledore not like been completely like smacked in the face with well that's of course where Harry is he didn't just leave the office Harry would have just been stuck there for god knows how long <laughs> to be fair Harry left the door on the cabinet open that was not that was closed Dumbledore, Dumbledore no the, the way I interpreted it was like it was mostly closed but there was a light shining through it, it wasn't like perfect okay yeah kind of probably thing. And Harry just cut. It's Harry. He just left it wide open behind him. Probably left a couple socks around the room. It's how he does things. That's Harry, yeah. not you, Spencer. I confuse <laughs> the two. Um, and then the last thing, which is very on brand, and I think says something about things that we were talking about in the last chapter with uh, how good our divination professor is uh, when Harry is explaining to. Dumbledore that, you know, I fell asleep in divination as one does and Dumbledore is basically like quite understandable. Okay, continue (laughs) with your story. Like, this is of absolutely no surprise to me. I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, those are are the the wheezes of this chapter. Um, I think that you have uh, siphoned off and or extracted some good wheezes from this chapter that are now (laughs) floating around in a basin for our listeners. (laughs) No, no. Newbie's notes? Yes, please. Uh, point number one, Harry's point about Madame Maxine that he didn't see her feels like a useless point in the Wizarding World when we know that cloaks of invisibility exist. <laughs> but they're not so, a common thing. Like, we well, know that that's, like, a somewhat unique thing of power. It does seem like that, that specific artifact and its ability right. to, you know, be immune to everybody else is very special. Ability to not be seen, not that hard. So the fact that the Minister of Magic just kind of immediately gets embarrassed when Harry points out I didn't literally see her doesn't necessarily say the best things about his follow through on these kind of matters but also his immediate jump to just racism is also does not yes. say great things about anything really there's an kind of on brand though it's an, it's an element that he kind of felt called out in that moment which wanted to get away from it as fast as possible uh, the appearance of Fox serves absolutely no purpose to the story other than to remind us that he exists and yet it still made me gleeful just that just Fox giving Harry a side eye was all I needed for this chapter, and yet we get more. I love um, how here for Fox you are, Spencer. I, d- damn straight I am. I, I'm here for Dumbledore's office. Can I just, I don't need to see the rest of Hogwarts. Can I just spend like an hour just roaming through the collection of magical artifacts and creatures that we saw once that that room is? I get to see all of the former professors who are all asleep. I, I get to see... Uh, this, the uh, Sword of Godric Gryffindor is now peered down for just one half of a scene for us to remember that it exists. The Sorting Hat's there, just chilling. And these are only the things that Harry looks at before he gets distracted by a bright light in the corner. This room sounds awesome! Yeah. Uh, of course Harry had to touch the thing. If there's any more Harry thing possible, it's the touching of the thing. And as you noted, Sarah, his little narrator thing is like he's trying to get me to give him credit for not touching it with his finger. <laughs> Harry, you went full Steve Irwin and just poked it with a stick. This is not better, sir. This is the... Poking it with a stick means that you're not physically touching it. I, I think poking it with a finger is better than I put my face in it. Slightly <laughs> well, accidentally, maybe. I know. This is where I progressed to is that I should get credit. I didn't literally stick my finger in this strange magical artifact that I've never seen before. I just put my magical wand that I'm holding in it to, and then I dunked my face. <laughs> and that happens in like a paragraph. So, Harry, no kudos for you, even if the narrator was trying to do that. That said, that basin is awesome. That basin is incredible. The Pensieve 
look, I pronounced it once in the only right time I pronounced it the entire damn time. Good work. Is a very damn powerful magical artifact that I would get lost in quickly. This is nostalgia embodied. And particularly if it hangs around the memories of other people, too, which isn't particularly clear. Uh, it almost seems like it has a bit of a dark side to it, both positive and negative in the sense that nostalgia always is, that Dumbledore seems not only just using it willingly, he almost seems compelled to keep going over to it. If it's an element of unburdening himself of all the difficulties, that of all the things that he has to hold as part of his job, as part of his person, if it's a trying to escape from memories, if it's a trying to disappear into memories, maybe a little of everything, but it definitely seems like Dumbledore is even more distracted than he usually is in this scene, and it seems driven by this magical artifact. So, I, like, to that, I would say we know that he's old. And we yes. know that wizards age in a way that, like, they are not as firm as they were when they were younger wizards. And so, you know, we're kind of starting to see, like, age being talked about as a thing that happens and has an effect. And this chapter might be kind of the first time that we really get that. And it's notable, too, that Harry highlights that point, that I never saw Dumbledore as old before he saw him kind of hanging over this pensive looking into it. That mm -hmm. was the first moment he ever realized his age. Yeah. Um, and we also get comments on Moody, Karkarov, um, and I think Crouch, and sort of like how they've changed. And uh, our journalist, too. What's, it, what's her name again? Oh, Rita yeah. Skeeter. Skeeter, Rita Skeeter, Skeeter yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's interesting now that we're we're talking about the Pensieve and, and Dumbledore's relationship to the Pensieve in this way, how many parallels there are and can be between the way the Pensieve is talked about and Dumbledore's relationship to it and the Mirror of Erised from the very first book. I had not noticed that before, but it has that same sort of, um, you know, wizards have gotten, have lost themselves before it kind of quality mm -hmm. to it. It's notable that for both of those artifacts, the first moment we ever find them is Dumbledore sitting alone in a room staring at it. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether he's setting up for well, Harry to find, Dumbledore <laughs> was there alone with the thing. No, he had other people. Well, he might have been. I guess that's with, the implication. With, with the Pensieve, I think he even explicitly says that he was looking at it alone. He hid right. it before anybody else showed mm -hmm. up. Yeah. He just didn't hide it that great. And the fact that he hid it is interesting. Because that implies there's a certain degree of either prohibition or di general wizarding discomfort over the fact of him knowing this, or he didn't want anybody else to look through his memories with him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I would certainly imagine that he would like us to believe that the only reason is that he doesn't want these memories to be seen, particularly by the people in the room with him. Yeah. Right, I mean, yeah. Bagman is... Dumbledore. <laughs> Bagman. Um, yeah. And so, like, it seems... And it also seems like this could be used... It obviously can be used by anybody, maybe both ways. And so, like, it's unclear that, you know, it, let's say somebody put in a bunch of memories that have nothing to do with what Dumbledore is trying to do currently. Mm -hmm. Like, does that mess it up? Like, it's just, what? you know, I can't imagine that we'll ever find out, like, the ins and outs of, of the Pensieve. But the potential uses for this are colossal and equally nightmarish. I mean, for the courtroom drama scene where we have of interrogation and everything else that's happening here, the Pensieve could have a lot of uses in that regard in a way that is terrifying, particularly mm -hmm. if it's actually removing memories. It's like, oh, you're ready to provide testimony? Let's just yank it out of you and put it in the bowl for everybody to see, which is horrifying if it's actually extracting and permanently removing the memories from them in the way this is suggesting. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that we were going to talk about this a little bit in questions, but what I can... You know, I ca it, this conversation is so interesting because I can confirm that we do see the Pensieve again and like several several more times in different contexts in different books as well. So this is not one of those one-off things that, that we sometimes get and never see again. Partially mm -hmm. because it is a, a useful narrative device for J.K. Rowling to not do like flashbacks and things like that. We're just in somebody else's memories. But we do get... So a couple of things just on that point. We never get any any evidence that you can take memories from someone who is not willing to give them. So mm. this never comes up as a sort of forced, a thing that you can force someone to do. It's not like the Obliviate spell where you can just erase someone's memory, whether you, if they're not, you know, actively counting, uh, casting like a counter hex or something like that, or a protective spell. Um, uh, there are some... 
Could you force somebody to do it? Could you mind control somebody into doing it? Not, not that we, not that we see. Um, I, if I'm thinking through that, like if somebody is under the Imperius curse and you sort of force them through the Imperius curse to remove their own memories, I would imagine that those memories would be corrupted in some way, shape, or form. Um, simply, and I always say that, that, that would be a good narrative device yes. to prevent this from happening. Yeah, because you know, um, like that would get real sticky, yeah. <laughs> real fast. Um, but like, I could also imagine it's just like, well, you can either do this, or well, we have a bunch of dementors here that can help you out. Yeah, I don't, and that gets the explanation is that they need to be freely given. Uh, of of course, that gets a little sticky. They when you take the memories out to use them in the Pensieve, though, um, they do not, like, actually remove those memories from your brain. You still have them. You're just making, essentially, a sort of carbon copy of them that becomes the sort of physically instantiated form of them. Um, And we know that specifically in later books because it's, like, people are talking about the memories and they are still there for other reasons. Anyway, well... We'll get so, there. This, this is this is a very sixth sixth book thing to have, but we get more information about how the Pensieve actually works. So, okay. in, in terms of pondering Dumbledore's terminology, this is more this, this is less him unburdening himself than unpacking his memories, mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And I think he probably means unburdening more in a sort of like therapy sense than to bring it back to Ted Lasso again. But uh, in a in a kind of like let me unburden myself to be able to see these in a way that is distanced from myself in some way. That makes sense. Well, as for the memories we get to explore, I absolutely adore this scene, and not because it's the one courtroom drama we get in the text so far. <laughs> um, but I love its progression. I love the sense of passage of time that we get through the characters and how they're acting and how the world itself appears to be getting darker as the, as Harry goes through it. I also love the the visuals we got of this just utterly cold and uncompromising, I mean, pardon the term, witch trial that we have put on play here, um, as well as just the omnipresent sense of rigidity that's being brought to everything as Crouch is utterly in control the first moment and then how things get increasingly darker and more violent as the text goes through and as things get more desperate as we heard before. It's beautifully done. I love the images, the feeling I get as we go through that. Uh, Just a further proof that Harry does not know shit about Dumbledore, his whole line about Dumbledore wouldn't ignore him like that shows a fundamental lack of knowledge of the impishness of this other character. (laughs) (laughs) He really, yeah, he really should only be his only evidence should be that no one else in the room has commented on his sudden presence. Dumbledore would yeah. absolutely sit there without commenting on his sudden appearance. Until the moment Harry looked away or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is mm-hmm. how this guy runs. Uh, things that surprised me, I was not, with how much we've been talking about Karkaroff and his prior involvement, I was not expecting him to have such a, a linchpin role as an informer in the start of this chapter with uh, at, at the role of the trial. Him I also, a bit of, mm-hmm. so go ahead. Uh, him being apparently arrested pretty early in the Wizarding Revolt based on the passage of time, him being hauled in from Azkaban by the Dementors, and him naming names was... It caught me off guard that he had such an integral role that early on in things. It may explain to the degree to which he's able to operate in polite society why so many of the other ones are either dead or in Azkaban. Yeah, and I was also surprised that we got just straight-up confirmation at this point that Mm -hmm. he was... like That seems like a later reveal... Or something else going on. Also very surprising that, like, yes, he can participate in society, but insane to me that he's the headmaster of another school. (laughs) And, um, Spencer, I don't know how much note of this you took. He basically didn't give up any names. Well, he gave up one huge name, apparently. Mm Mm-hmm is that apparently this Augustus Rookwood of the Department of Mysteries seems like he was guilty based on the conversations that they have later that, yeah, he was integrally involved and he was a spy in the interior ranks. Yeah, he's a real bad dude and he's in the Department of Mysteries, which we learn more about later too, is a very strange place for him to be. Um, I guess it's with what was said, it seems like it'd be insanely hard to like verify this he he like chose people that seems like it like had already been uncovered or somebody that was super hard to verify and that may have bit him in the ass but it i also imagine that like the progression was very weird like it's a we know about that we know about that we know about that and then there's this other person that well, there almost seems like a suggest well 
point number one, it seems like he was caught on like day two of the war. That he's been out of the loop for a while as to what the status of everybody else is and clearly is lacking that information. He's caught off guard to find out that almost everybody else he names is either dead or in prison already. Mm-hmm. So that's point number one. Point number two, it seems like he's intentionally trying to still play close to the vest. Like he's still an element of playing both sides where I'll give away some low-named people that don't matter for shit just in case this war goes sideways later on and I gotta I justify my own actions. So I, I was just trying to get out. I named people that don't matter. I was trying to get out so I can keep helping you. That kind of thing. And when that doesn't work, he then finally drops a big name. And so it, it, I've talked a couple of times about the things in the movies that I think are done better than in the books. First of all to note is that these scenes are wonderfully rendered in the movies. They're, they're super great. They're very creepy. They really capture the kind of chaos um, and weirdness that we get in the books, which I, I think is really great. But one thing that makes a little bit more more sense in the movies concerning Karkaroff and his confe- confession and perhaps why he was eventually let go to go do other things in the world is that in the movies, he's the one who names Barty Crouch Jr., that and is an interesting... That's the that's, big fish. That's an interesting reveal, because that directly connects us into the plot of the next the next point. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as big of fish, effectively, but it's more of a shocking fish yes. rather than, like, a really massively important fish. Yeah. Okay. It's a politically important fish rather than, like, a wartime important fish. Yes. Yes. Um, particularly given how, you know, these trials are really Barty Crouch's whole deal. Personal domain. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I actually, I thought that that made much more sense narratively and kind of plot-wise than the reveals that happen, the names he gives in the in the book. Well, particularly if the other information he's giving is good, it adds an extra insidious element to things. It's not literally that he was caught, it's that he was actually named by a reliable informer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, well, and informer. They presume reliable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's also very funny. British of them. It's also interesting to find a lot of confirmation about Moody's prior actions as a, you know, are as hunting people down. So we've heard just a lot of rumors before anything else. Here we straight up hear, no, no, he personally caught Karkaroff six months ago. And he personally killed Rosier, I think it was. Uh, not one of the names that Karkaroff identifies. Uh, losing part of his nose in the process. And he's not done. Our first point in the war, think, think about all these memories, he still has his eye, which suggests that the battles this man fights in this war have only just begun, even at this point. Uh, it's finally nice to have Dumbledore offer, st- I think one of the first opinions we have, that this whole alliance with the Dementors thing, kind of fucked up. Mm-hmm. Ki- yeah. Kind of a problem. I think the Ministry was wrong to ally with such creatures is a really mild way to say, dear Lord, what have we inflicted upon us and our people? But it's a start. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's int- it's also intriguing to see the list that Karkov names. How skilled the Ministry was at hunting these people down, even in the early war. That it's clear that their efforts were pretty. Whatever they want to say about how the war kept going on, there was violence everywhere. It seems like their efforts, particularly in the early war, were pretty successful actually in catching at least among the more obvious of people, which is to their credit of them and the orders that were uh, enforcing the law. So, quick question, Sarah. Was there anybody other than Moody doing this, or is this just Moody just, like, <laughs> just... going hog wild? We, we do find out about Neville's yeah. parents, yes. or Neville's dad was another example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were, I mean, there certainly were other Aurors. Right. We do learn about a lot of them later. We also just had, like, resistance figures who were doing mm-hmm. doing some of this work. And Harry, you know, we find out, although this was, Harry's parents were among them, so... Um, there was this kind of group of people who who was taking this on, um, somewhat some some extra legally, <laughs> as they do. Yeah, it, is this the most... extra legal means that like it's it's super legal, like, really good, <laughs> right? It really depends on what stance you, on, or who you are in that scenario. Are you the guy doing it? You might really hold that view. Uh, is this the most confirmation we have yet about Snape's past with the respect of Voldemort and the Death Eaters? It's the mm-hmm. most clearly laid out explanation, and, and it's still, like, it's very sketchy, it's very rudimentary, but it is the, the most we have gotten as yeah. far as what actually happened with him. We, we got data points. We found out that he was a Death Eater, that he rejoined our side before Voldemort's fall, Double and that he served as, a, served as a spy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that this is probably one of the most 
cold moments we ever get out of Dumbledore, and I'm jumping ahead to the end, but when Harry asks him straight up for more information on this, Dumbledore is like, no. And that's it. That's mm-hmm. done. We've never really gotten that kind of, and we're finished moment from Dumbledore before. To the point even Harry's like, and I'm backing away, and I'm backing <laughs> away. Well, but we've also not seen him pry into other people's confidences with Dumbledore, essentially. Right? Like, the, the confidences that Harry goes into are those of his parents. That, not yeah, of, he hasn't like, really asked else. for other other information. He doesn't care about anybody else up until this point where he's just like, well, tell me about Snape because I hate him. Well, no, he did. Let's be fair. He did first ask about the Longbottoms. Right. But like, yeah, that's true. I think we just mean like before this conversation. But before this conversation is, right. is absolutely fair. Yeah. And but also like Dumbledore's response is like, don't tell anybody because I 100% know that you're going to do that. And I kind of suspect he's he might tell Ron and Hermione because... Oh, that'd, be, that'd be fucked up. Um, not, like, maliciously. It doesn't actually, matter. He actually doesn't. I can... Wow. Like, keeps this, yeah. God, I hope BJ? I'm right on that. I don't remember him doing this. I'm pretty sure that there's another scene that means he doesn't do this. Shit. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. For right now, I'm going to say, BJ, look at this. The character's progressing. And you will get to ra- hang that around my neck if Sarah proves wrong later on in the story. Uh, I'm going to find a seabird appropriate to do so. <laughs> uh, in a scene where only the jury has a contrary view to the rest of us, uh, seeing Ludo Bagman appear before the court and have them debate whether he was a Death Eater or a moron, and I am left to ask, why not both? Um concerning apparently passing information to Voldemort supporters, specifically that member of the Ministry of Magic, uh, Augustus Rookwood. Yes. Which mm-hmm. is confirmation that Augustus Rookwood was a, a Death Eater, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, as said, just confirming all the negative opinions I have on juries to see the difference between the crouch and the crowd opinions of the man, as the jury finds him unanimously not guilty and then compliments him on his recent performance at Quidditch. Yeah, I was going to say, I think they find him unanimously good at Quidditch. <laughs> this might be well a, uh, a little bit prescient of the influenza affliction. <laughs> the affluenza? Yes. Thank yeah, you, Spencer. This, this, this is jury nullification by sports appreciation. I'm not for it. It's also, one thing that's very notable in that scene, too, Crouch has absolutely no qualms, unlike everybody else at just saying Voldemort. Everybody else, everybody else, including the Voldemort supporters that are on the stand, do, do he who shall not be named. Crouch just name drops him. Yeah. Right and left. Like so Dumbledore. Like, like that's, yeah. I, I think we have, like, reasons that they might not. And I th- didn't Dumbledore basically say, like, if you believe that he has power and name him, it does give him power. But, like, if you just say his name and are just like, he's a dude then it doesn't. Like, it's, yeah. it, seems that, it seems that everyone's so bought up into the mythos, it's become a superstition at this point, whether they necessarily believe it or not. It's just endemic culturally, in a way that I feel very fitting that Crouch would have absolutely no time for. Right, but I guess it's, I think that it would have been at least a faux pas for, for like, Voldemort supporters to say his name on the stand. Like, you're sure, bringing the good... evil eye on us, kind of, or whatever. Yeah, and they, I mean, they certainly believe in the power of his name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And given that the ones that we see are testifying are arguably betraying him, or at least claiming no loyalty, that could come back to bite them later. Mm-hmm. As we have discussed with uh, Karkarov later, too. Uh, we have it very much on the nose that Bagman apparently was offered the, a job in the ministry by Rookwood, which Crouch considers a, dark, a sad day for the ministry if that ever comes to pass. It's interesting then that it came to pass. I can't imagine it was still based on the recommendation of a confirmed Death Eater. I'm hoping there was another a more elaborate process that went into play, but it clearly has now come to pass. Maybe it's like India, where if you're good enough at sports, you get government jobs. <laughs> Regardless of prior, a prior sedition towards the state. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna, you know, so try it. You gotta support them. It's not like they can do anything else. There, there are like three jobs in the wizarding world, as we've discussed, and there's no way Dumbledore is going to let him teach at Hogwarts, so... The revelation about uh, Neville's parents is horrifying. 
it's legitimately horrifying. Not only finding out at the trial, finding out what happened, that Crouch's son may have been involved, that he was an Auror, that he was captured, that he was subject to the Cruciatus Curse along with his wife to get information to bring Voldemort back, but that they're not dead. The fact that they are insane in an asylum and Neville visits them every holiday is haunting. And it's tragic. And if my sympathy couldn't get any more extreme for Neville, it found a way. Um... So yeah, that that's just terrible. Uh, that caught me off guard, honestly. The text really went... The text every now and then goes really dark in a way that it can't go back. And it still catches me off guard when it does it, just due to the lapses we get in time between them when those happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for Crouch's son, it's clear that everybody around him is guilty as sin, uh, and that Crouch is utterly remorseless in terms of regarding his son, even rejecting the idea that he has a son afterwards. It seems to want to play up to us the possibility that Crouch was innocent, or at least con- con- uh, 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 convicted on very circumstantial evidence. However, given this story, it just makes me even more likely to believe that he was actually guilty of sin. But that's just kind of me conditioned based on how this text works. I mean, but we've also gotten like so many references to it. It's a, this is going to... It feels like a, still this is going to come up again, as opposed yes. to... This is the time that it came up again. No, this has been emphasized so much so much throughout the story. It's not even just a, this is going to come up again. It's that this story in some way shifts on this point. No idea how, but we'll find out. Uh, I really enjoyed how Dumbledore chose to appear in the scene of where not even saying a word until it's just two Dumbledores next to each other with Harry turning around and seeing them both at the same time. That was a very fun visual for how that, how that happened. And it's also interesting to have made very clear here that Snape, as we've been debating off-camera, has been constantly informing Dumbledore with updates about what the status of Death Eater information is, including the little emblem on his arm and everything else. We debated that previously. It's nice to see that brief little pass-through memory from Dumbledore is that, oh yeah, Snape's been reporting it. There's a reason Dumbledore trusts him as much as he does. We don't know why exactly, but here's a further example. I mean, this does really feel like a Dumbledore has a bunch of other knowledge, and Snape's just confirming it, And Snape doesn't know that Dumbledore knows. Because, like, Dumbledore... Maybe Dumbledore doesn't know all, but it's real close. Um, And so, you know, this really feels like a... Snape said things that he didn't have to say, and so Dumbledore now trusts him because of it. Apparently, among that list of informers, we also have Sirius, which caught me the hell... Caught me somewhat off guard. Probably shouldn't have, but find out Sirius has just been forwarding Harry's letters to Dumbledore. Gives me a drastically (laughs) improved view of Sirius as a character. But it does also explain some, like, things that we sort of discussed, like, how can Sirius sort of be on grounds when they're super protected and other things like that? Like the flu powder, for example, right? Right. Yeah. We, we assume Dumbledore was intimately involved in this. Now we know he just... It's, it's not that he's just tolerating it, it's that he has a partner in crime. I also love the lack of trust on Sirius's part to ever think Harry would tell Dumbledore any of this shit directly. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Dumbledore's going to find about this, i got to send it to him now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, as you referenced earlier, Dumbledore's whole line of naturally it would have attracted your attention is... Yeah, between this and the Mirror of Erezed, it's very clear when Dumbledore is leaving things out for people to find. For clear reasons. He wanted Mm -hmm. to have this conversation. He wanted to give Harry an insight into this. He is setting up the next of Harry's difficult, barely-will-survive learning experiences of this year at Hogwarts. It's something I didn't note earlier, but it's useful for the text to remind us in this chapter. Voldemort has a body again. I didn't really kind of process that as much as I should have back in the prologue. Yeah, He sort of has a body again. We learn more about that later. He has a physical form. He does have a physical form. He is not leeching off of, like he was with Quirrell, for example. He is not leeching off of, like, the specific form of someone else. Yeah. Or whatever that weird unicorn vampiric state was that he was sharing or in. in um, What what book was that where we came across that cloaked figure sucking out a unicorn? The first book. That that was first Mm -hmm. book. Okay, so that's back then again. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um... Let's see what else have I got. It's interesting to see that Dumbledore is the only one who reads Muggle newspapers, and it's proving useful. Of that course he, it is. Uh, that he is in the loop that Frank Bryce, our groundsman from the prologue, has gone missing, and he's accurately tying those threads together. So, BJ, as you noted, it is clear that Dumbledore knows all in a way that the rest of the magic world doesn't even have the pieces to put together. I would be flabbergasted if Mr. Weasley 
didn't have also a better view of things because because he's in touch with the muggle world which is kind of fascinating that maybe maybe there is a bunch there are a bunch of positions in the ministry to do this but like given how significant an impact Voldemort had on the muggle world to just completely ignore it is foolish at best Mm -hmm. um and and I do imagine that it will filter into the ministry through Mr. Weasley because they are that foolish to be like, why would we ever trouble ourselves with the muggles? And that's just how they run things. I, I will say a major through line of these books moving forward is exactly how much the ministry would like to ignore things and will expend resources, manpower, expenses to ignore as much as humanly possible. This this seems very much like a uh, problem-at-the-top kind of situation when it comes to that kind of decision-making, is that Fudge seems very content to bury his head in the sand and pretend everything is fine in a way that I can't imagine if Crouch had been in charge, that would be as much the philosophy. Yes. Um, I think there would be other problems with Crouch in charge. Oh, God, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The trials never would have stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you don't really want to give McCarthy all of the power. Um, <laughs> Things will get done in all the ways that implies. Yes. Yeah. You know, it uh, goes a little bit the other direction than Voldemort was going, but still a bad one. Well, uh, that wraps up for me for Newbie's Notes. Uh, Sarah, in mostly flashback form, who won and lost this chapter? Yeah, this is this is an interesting one. I have some thoughts, but I do, I just want to make sure, because I know we talked about how horrendous... Um, the reveal of what happened to Frank and Alice Longbottom is. Thank mm-hmm. you for the Alice, by the way, because I think they just referred to her as Mrs. Longbottom threat or Mrs. Frank Longbottom or the wife of Frank Longbottom threat. Oh, I couldn't. Thing. I didn't remember. It is. It is Alice Longbottom. I don't remember if they did it in this chapter, but we do. We do do learn that eventually. But I just want to make sure that we have made clear that the Longbottoms were tortured by Death Eaters using the Cruciatus Curse. This is the reason that Neville was so affected by Moody's um, lesson at the beginning of this book. And Moody knows that, and that's why he's be- he was nice to him afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which and also, good. that's why he knew about the curse, like, and, and yes. had, like, this... Right. And I think we speculated about that mm-hmm. in that chapter. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, that it's confirmed and also that the references to this hospital have been interesting. Um, and this is sort of one of those, like, the references always, like, seem to paint it as a not, like, other terrible place. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't Azkaban, but, like, maybe it's more depressing. It's not um, great, especially because we have seen, like, the power of what M- Madame Pomfrey can heal. So yeah. what does it take yeah. for you to end up in St. Mungo's? The human right. mind is a special thing. And also interesting that, like, there are so many mind-manipulating spells that, you know, aren't stuff that Miss Pomfrey does, but, like, I don't know, mm-hmm. se- seem like they, they could be useful in certain ways, uh, a la Lockhart. Um, <laughs> no one wants to help him. <laughs> Well, not so much help him, but, like, the stuff that he was using and he was good at, sure, like, yeah. used in a more positive ah. way, perhaps. Mm. Um, Sarah, I'm anyway. glad you made, you, you made that reference again, because it's one thing I really do appreciate about how much the books have grown up, is that the text did not feel the need to remind us of that. Yes. Um, that I feel it, the need to remind us of that, but I do think it's... You know, this is a real storyline, and it's a real through line that Rowling is kind of letting hang there which i i really appreciate and it's like you said spencer it's dark it's real dark well it it just really further encapsulates that quietly mostly off camera neville's getting a story arc he's Mm -hmm. getting a background he's getting a loss of parents moment he's setting up in some ways a lot of the classic archetypes of archetypes of being a hero Mm -hmm. which he's got a ways to go before that one pulls off but it's (laughs) it's interesting to see a lot of the a lot of the boxes being checked yeah So to get back to winners and losers, I would say that we have a lot of candidates for losers of house points this chapter. Um, They are are rampant 
in these trial scenes, but I'm going to put forth someone that we talked about as a potential loser a couple of chapters ago and decided not to give it to him because we didn't really know what was going on with him and couldn't really make that call. But I'm going to posit, put forth for your consideration, uh, Barty Crouch Sr. Yeah, that's actually who I was going to suggest. I mean, this, this chapter seems to be built around the idea of the downfall of a great man. Is that he's at starts at the moment of his power, the moment of his prestige, presiding over this courtroom that is his absolute domain, and by the end, his even physicality has been reduced to a quivering wreck, even before it's recognized by the world. Mm-hmm. And notably, none of these three trials actually go in his favor. Um, even in the first one with Karkaroff, he doesn't really get much information from him, as mm-hmm. we as we talked about. And then we, it goes downhill from there. He's disgusted at the Ludo Bagman, tri- like a farce of a trial. And then we have the final trial that we see with his, I mean, him disowning his own son. Mm-hmm. This is really, as much as he is power mad and really difficult to handle in uh, at here at the height of his powers, this is really crippling for him. It, it's in, it's interesting to have a great deal of sympathy for what a person who's personally essentially functioning as a despot. But by mm-hmm. the end of this, you do just because you see what state he's reduced to. He's taken all of this on himself, the sins of the community, because he feels it's necessary, and it's utterly breaking him by the time this story's done. Yeah, and like I, I like your comparison of him to a despot because like this is clearly a wartime powers thing. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and... Vold- by the time these trials are happening, Voldemort has fallen, but we are still, like, the aftermath is so much impor- more important at that point. Right. Yeah. yeah a, a dictator has essentially been appointed Roman style, and he's presiding under his yes. authority. And unfortunately, his son stabbed him in the back. <laughs> Brutally, you might say. Well, mm. We don't even know if it's... <laughs> well said. Okay, I just got that. It took me a second. Julia sees the reference. Appreciate it. Uh it, when it comes to the stab in the back, too, it's not entirely clear whether it's a literal or just a, a literal or political stab in the back. Yeah. Just it's yeah. to complete our Caesar comparisons. It's that Caesar's wife should be above suspicion kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So as far as winner of the chapter, I have to there are far fewer candidates for this, I think. I mean, certainly Ludo Bagman got off, which seems great for him. Sure. He could have really been in the shit. But honestly, it's got to be Dumbledore, right? His plan, Dumbledore does all the things, and his his little machinations came out the way they were supposed to. I will absolutely agree, but man, is it actually bittersweet to see him in it. Yes, I mean, seeing I mean, again, it's a very evocative image for me of just him, old man, in a way we've never seen him before, looking down at all mm-hmm. of his memories in the past, just dwelling in them in a way he can't even seem to control. This person who's a master of the world around him and himself, seemingly powerless to even deal with the process of his own past he wins but we're seeing an edge to him we've never seen before yes yeah this is a this is a real put a pin in it moment um mm-hmm. because it does seem it does seem pivotal so um and i think we also get some whiffs of how he wields his power mm-hmm. and him showing it to somebody else maybe not quite on purpose but this is like a this isn't a passage of the mantle, but like this is, we're seeing what the mantle is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're we're seeing the weight that it is upon a person in some ways. Yeah, we 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 saw that in Crouch too. We're seeing it in arguably two of the most powerful people we have in this text, who are utterly or barely able to stand upright under the weight of their responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know, fitting that they are also winners and losers of this chapter. They both have. Um, the shadow of something else happening as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, Sarah, I think these are, these are good, solid choices. Thank you. So, questions. Do we ever see Mrs. Crouch again? Yes. Interesting, because she's dead, right? Yeah, she is. Okay, so, gotcha, that's interesting. Yeah, so we get more information about Mrs. Crouch. I mean, so we do not, in the present, we do not see her again, but she is right referenced again. She comes back yes. in the books, which is essentially what I was asking. Yeah. I don't know if you already said this right. Pensieve, we seeing this again? Many times, yes. Yeah. In in okay. several different, we see it at least, we see it many different times. It becomes really important in the sixth book. I think we might see it again before then. I can't remember, but in the sixth and seventh books, it's it's 
this is a thing to remember. Yeah. Do is there a mechanism to restore the memories or once you put it in, it's sort of in there and you can control what you see? Um, you mean to put like put the silvery bits back in your head? Or like, is there some sort of expiry or is it just like that thing's going to contain all of Dumbledore's memories, basically, and maybe all of the users in the past? Yeah, it's a good right. question. I don't I don't. It's never explicitly answered. Of course, it's um, <laughs> is the is there an empty recycle bin function on this thing? I think there must be. I, maybe he just has a sort of like um, spit bucket <laughs> behind <laughs> the <a> visual. <laughs> because I mean, I think we that's do... called a ram dump. <laughs> sure. Yeah. When when we do get the pensive again, Dumbledore is working on a different problem. And it's not mixed. The memories that he uses at that point are not mixed up with these memories. So he has clearly put these silvery bits somewhere else. And he, he, yes, he's very good about his mise en place. <laughs> Maybe he sticks well, them in the sorting hat, and this is why the sorting hat's so <laughs> oh, weird. <God. laughs> Man, if he, and if he knows stick- about all sorts of random things. <laughs> well, if you stick... I mean, at a certain point, if he actually sticks them in something, that thing is effectively becoming Dumbledore. It's absorbing his memories. Now, <laughs> the here's a theory Dumbledore... I have not read before, but I'm into it. The Sorting Hat and Dumbledore are one in ways I didn't ever really ponder before, but yeah, totally, they are. <laughs> Dumbledore had the maybe maybe the Sorting all... Hat got was uh, a powerful wizard previously that just got uh, changed into something because we know that you can do that with living objects. <laughs> it got haberdashered. <laughs> That one, that, actually, that one got me. <laughs> I'm waiting for that to be a spell at some point in this series, because it feels like something that uh, J.K. Rowling would use. Yeah. It, is this artifact one of those one-of-a-kind special locked-away artifacts that Dumbledore loves to reveal every now and then? So I think that there's a little bit of a weird difficulty in... I'll be interested to see when we get back to the Pensieve in later books, because there is a kind of difficulty in nomenclature here because it is unclear if the basin itself is the Pensieve. Oh. Or if the memories are the the Pensieve, if it's some sort of spell that causes the memories to become the silver bits and you can kind of siphon them off and extract them. Because I can't remember if we see people looking at memories in something other than this basin. I don't remember. That's an interesting thought, because it's not like it appears to be the basin itself that's drawing out the memories. It's Dumbledore who physically does it by an act of his own will and then just places it in the basin. Yeah, so there's the magic by which you... This might be like the hollow suite. (laughs) Sure. After a fashion, yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm unclear. I don't... I think we only see memories play out in the basin. Mm-hmm. I think that's true, but I'm not sure that the basin is specifically necessary. I don't know. I just don't know. Um, is the memory that's displayed in the basin only as complete as it is in your head? Yes. So these are. So there are a couple of things. The memories are are pretty specific to your vision of the world and probably how you experienced that moment in time. So they are iffy anyway what we also learn is that you can and we learn this in later books but i won't give any details about it so i don't think it's super spoilery is that you can um specifically alter your own memories as well not not in a particularly nuanced way but you can um manipulate them to remove certain bits if for example you think that someone else is going to be looking at them in the pensive Interesting. Yeah. Because, I mean, that, that would almost do, I mean, a follow-up to that, but if your memories are inaccurate, or in the sense that you, like, you thought you saw that guy fire the gun, mm-hmm. and that's your memory of had that, mm-hmm. is that what's going to be depicted, or actually what occurred? I, my impression is that it's going to be the former, um, because I think okay. that part of the, part of the point of the Pensieve is also to get at the weirdness of memory and the difficulty of memory. Um, so it, it becomes a really problematic thing in the world. And, but also like it's, it's filled in, in ways that a direct replay wouldn't be. Yes. I mean, Harry Potter standing behind Dumbledore and Dumbledore's there. Mm -hmm. So this is more like a, 
you know, a play of the scene rather yes. than like what Dumbledore experienced. Yes. There, there was one interesting element of that that I was willing to write off that his memories of the trials are perfect. His memories that we also just see cutaway of casual conversations appear fractured and incomplete and aren't even, aren't, aren't even full sentences. Mm-hmm. So it may be a certain implication of this was a momentous enough moment in my life or a series of moments that they're just burned into my memory. Whereas the conversation I had with Snape five minutes ago doesn't really stick out as much. Yeah, hence Bertha Jorkins is like... Yeah. If a flakier than I think she would have been in real life. Even though she is absolutely random. a flake. Well, it's like that's the only memory he has of her is that one brief cutaway of her yes. back in school. Yeah. And it is clearly frustrating to him that that memory is not better. Fair, yeah. Why was Snape... Or why was Dumbledore at the trial? Because he's Dumbledore. No, okay. so it's a couple... I mean, I think, like, A, it's because he's Dumbledore. He was also in line to become... Like, he people were recruiting him to become Minister of Magic instead of Fudge. It was oh, not a thing that he, he wanted. But, right. you know, he ha- he holds that place in sort of wizarding society. He might have just been there as a spectator. I mean, I think that he okay. was just there as a spectator, but a, a spectator that people were recruiting to be there. I It's possible right. that he himself just wanted to bear witness. Um, right. As someone I mean, I guess who it's, would need he, to remember these things later. It didn't seem like he was in, like, the viewing public. Mm-hmm. And, like, it, it, it felt like he had a very official position, like, co-counsel or something like that. Mm-hmm. But doesn't really make sense for him to be there other than, like, maybe, like, I guess it's sort of like a council of all the powerful wizards. Like, yeah. why, why Moody was there. Yeah. But Moody brought Karkarov in, so, like, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point you make there, BJ, because I had forgotten about this, that most of our first, I think, for most of what we see, it's just like he's just a casual observer. But notably during the Ludo Bagman trial, Crouch sits next to him after the presiding ruling, as if Dumbledore's in some place of high station that the judge can just get down and go right to him when things are done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a little unclear, the, because they reference the the jury here. Which mm-hmm. is a little bit inconsistent with how we see these wizard trials happen in other books. I think um, that after this book and when she decided that she was going to have more specifically trial scenes, I think that J.K. Rowling fleshed out what that was going to look like a little more than you see it here. Because essentially what he's in front of is the wizard gamut, wizen gamut, which is the high wizard court which is a, an, an amalgamation of ministers, high-level wizards, um, other people in, in kind of society. Like, it's a, it's a di- different kind of thing than an actual sort of Barty Crouch is the judge presiding over this juried trial. That's not really... While there is a... Things are put to a vote, it's not a jury, per se. Um, last one for me, but should I assume that evidence is being presented in a separate hearing off camera no (laughs) all we get here is and this is the witness pronounce your verdict it's like did 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 they get like a little packet or something of what the evidence was it's a cardassian court it's fine spencer (laughs) they already know what's gonna happen um we we just didn't we didn't get much in the way of like a defense or presentation of evidence or anything to say why these people are guilty other than the judge just said what they did was heinous. <laughs> All right, well, but also Spencer, this is a narrative device, and yes, there are people like you. I, 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 what I'm asking about is we find out we just found out from Sarah that we're going to find out more later about the process of these court proceedings. I'm asking as a process of the court proceedings whether this happens. Um, I mean, they're, they're, in other court proceedings, we do get sort of evidence, but they all feel, all of the trials that we see feel really... witch hunty. Yeah. Um, these are, none of the trials that we see, I, if I'm right, no, none of the trials that we see feel like they are specifically, they're not evidence-based. They don't feel like justice is being carried out. There are witnesses called... But it's a it's a kangaroo court. More marsupial than official. This felt very Stalin Soviet tribunal thing about like, mm-hmm. and this is what your plea will be today, kind of kind of shit. Yeah. All right. I think that's it for the. Qu- I mean, there are so many more questions, but I think oh, that's yeah. like the major. We're good. Well, but at least there were uh, things in this have. actual things in this chapter that you can ask questions about that aren't just plot related. There are. 
devices and things. So um, our next chapter, chapter 31, is the third task. It is. Um, and a is that a feminine-looking lion. I guess it's a sphinx. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've had enough myth in this series that we can obviously get some riddles now if we want. Well, we've had one riddle before. Oh, wow. Okay. Good joke. Well said. Moving on. Um, so uh, this has been th- fun, guys. Yeah, this was a blast of a chapter. Quite enjoyed this. Um, and I think, Sarah, you said before, this is your favorite chapter in the series? Or just the favorite chapter in this book? Oh, the one we did today? I really enjoyed this chapter. I think that the concept of the Pensieve is super interesting. And going back into Dumbledore's memory is uh, a bizarre place to be. And yet here we are. Hopefully we'll get to experience it again sometime here soon. Yes. But for the time being, looking forward to the next chapter. Yes.